realistically, when we make decisions that are informed by impact groups, particularly environments of radical uncertainty, which really, you know, many of the decisions that we deal with are, the rules change from this kind of individual decision-making biases and heuristics kind of. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Kyle Bird, product strategy and uncertainty leader. I've had the pleasure to know Kyle now for many years. We first met when he was a product leader at Agile Craft, an early startup that grew and scaled and went on to be acquired by Atlassian, where I was an advisor as he led the product team. He then moved on into Atlassian to work on their products and helped turn Agile Craft into Jira Align, now Atlassian's fastest selling product. But today he's shifting his focus. He started to think more and more about uncertainty and dealing with decisions and navigating how to make better choices, faster velocity and scale. He's culminated this into the Unthirty Project, a community around making decisions and learning and growing from one another. But he's also got another startup working in stealth mode. I'm excited to hear more about what he's been thinking about, what he's been learning and how the Uncertainty Project continues to grow. But before we go there, let's get started about where it began for him and some of the things he's grateful for about the choices he made early in his career. I'm kind of forever thankful that I got an art degree in college, which was in industrial design. It was interesting. It really like forces you to unlearn that there is a right answer and kind of in a very uncomfortable way. So like it forces you to constantly just make things until you just figure something out. I was always a hard worker. I was always a constant learner. I've worked odd jobs ever since I could work. And I've always been learning new things. In school, I taught CAD, I've taught CNC machining and 3D printing, you know, a bunch of like random non-software stuff, but I wouldn't say I was super studious. I just knew I liked tinkering, even if the outcome wasn't particularly useful and getting an art degree kind of tells you that that's okay. (laughs) Asking the question as far as anything that you look back on that doesn't necessarily kind of seem super profound, but it kind of carries a thread throughout your life is I look back on that and I'm super thankful. I kind of tend to see the world from more of like a problem to problem perspective, not necessarily like an answer to answer perspective, especially with a lot of the work that we've been doing lately is I think I've started to kind of like understand a bit more as to why I find that interesting. That is fascinating though, to hear you share that Kyle, even seeing the world from a problem to problem perspective, so much of, especially our academic conditioning, if you will, is like, oh, you will grow up to be this job. You'll train to be a mechanic, a doctor, a lawyer, like all these uh, accountants. Sorry for all the accountants out there. Somebody actually does that. But it's this notion that you're committing to something, a very specific discipline for like 30, 40 years, which actually I'm already starting to feel anxious just saying that out loud. Yet it seems like what you're talking about almost to what you were exposed through the path you took was you're committing to like find problems and solve them, which is a fascinating 
way to see the world, especially because the way the world is now, it's complex, it's evolving, it's changing. And funny enough, product management is one of those worlds where it is all about finding problems, finding fixes, unlocking the next problem once you fix that problem. And it's sort of an endless iteration of that. It's a fascinating insight to share, to be honest. How did you land on that even framing of it? When did you start to think about the world of these focusing on problems rather than a specific discipline that you were going to expect to become from even going through that process in university? Looking back, another kind of impactful thing as part of that, and again, I think I do spend a good amount of time thinking back as far as some of the early years and even back to some of the experience at Agilecraft and this transition. From a skill set perspective, I was a designer. I was a product designer. I never thought that I would work in software. I wanted to work in hardware. I wanted to design physical things. And that's you know all I wanted to do. Actually, when I took my first job in software, it was, I'll do this for a little bit. It's money. You know, I'll do this website thing and I'll, I'll move on to hardware. And what was actually interesting is I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it mostly because in hardware, you design something, you think about a lot of things up front, you know, at some point you got to go pay 50K, 100K, 200K for a mold and then hit like economies of scale or like, and all of these like assumptions follow you until this moment that you have a physical thing on the shelf. I think early on, it's like, wow, this is really, really interesting in software that you can just go problem to problem to problem. And you don't really carry these assumptions with you that can make or break you when a physical product is on the shelf and you've got hundred thousand in the warehouse or, or anything like that. I think that was a big moment. I think for product managers, and I guess anybody in software, I think that's something to really take advantage of is that opportunity, especially, you know, from my perspective, the alternative in hardware is incredibly difficult. It's almost impossible in some respects. Like it's a hard thing to do. So now, like, as you started to carry that forward, like let's unpack some of these things. So Agile Craft, it's a phenomenal company. We got to work there. You were one of the lead product managers in the company. I was doing an advisory role. We grew the company. You ended up exiting it to Atlassian. It's now uh, Jira Align, the fastest growing product in Atlassian's product portfolio. Like just ridiculous growth, right? Whatever, 10x and even the two or three years that it's been within Atlassian. But let's talk a little bit about your time then as you went from this sort of experiencing your art, you wanted to build hardware products, and yet now you're sort of starting to design software products. One thing that struck me instantly when we met is your passion for spending time with customers and hearing how they're using the product, its flaws, what was working for them. Like you have a huge passion and focus in that area. So what made you sort of zero in in those types of areas as you started to build these software products? Yeah. What's interesting about software is that you do have an opportunity to get, and I, I think this opportunity obviously ex exists in hardware and, you know, been mind you as a designer, you know, I did a lot of CAD modeling and things like that in the hardware world prior. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a domain expert when it comes to hardware, but especially being someone who I thought that was going to be my career in hardware, had interned and worked for industrial designers. And that was kind of my thing. It's funny that, I mean, there's investors that will literally say, it's like, we don't invest in atoms, we invest in bytes, right? You know, it's, it's interesting looking back, there's kind of like this separation. What was interesting about making 
for example, going to Agilecraft is I think the software, you do have this ability to be really obsessive over the problem and you have the flexibility to match a solution to those problems. What was really tough about going to Agilecraft was I was in a situation where I knew nothing of this massive world of Agile, scaled Agile, digital transformation, insert a million acronyms, a million words that mean a million different things. God forbid you say the word project for something and all of a sudden, you know, someone's like mad at you. I'm like, I don't even know what I said. I came into software. I used to really believe that it was the job of kind of, I was a product designer at the time. I love designing. I still do love designing, love the kind of the product management side as well. But I kind of believe that it was the job of kind of product designers and product managers to be like these outside experts. I think there's like a lot of value in that. And I used to kind of subscribe to that. Like I might be able to go to all of kind of these different areas and, you know, apply these tools and do the same thing. But I think it's some kind of combination of really just like deep domain expertise and the ability to just kind of draw from diverse perspectives, whether that's kind of like within yourself or from like other people, particularly ones that are seemingly unrelated. So even in, in a lot of the work that we do now, or even back at Agilecraft and, and into Jira Line, when you, you think about, you, know, you think about like outcome driven, or you think about decision-making, or you think about strategy, like there are so many parallels in other areas that I find so interesting. Like growing up, my dad worked at the shipyard working on aircraft carriers. So I, I was obsessed with aircraft carriers. I had a Lego model of the Amazing. USS Kitty Hawk. Yeah. But what was interesting about that is always hearing those things and just being in such a, and I was in a small town in Virginia. This was a very like military town. And that's something that I've always looked at. It's like the, you know, the largest organization kind of in the world. And a lot of models and techniques kind of come out of the military. And so, you know, when you think of these things, like whether it's wargaming or scenario planning or general's intent or any of these things, that was tough, you know, going into into Agilecraft being like, wow, it's, this is a really, really kind of dense place to go in and learn. It kind of went the direction where it's like, wow, I'm actually really, really obsessed with this problem. And I think there's a real opportunity to solve a lot of these problems, especially with like large organizations and big, messy processes and strategy and decision-making and visibility. And I really think there is another path to just say, you know, get really, really hyper obsessed with a problem to the point that you've I read about this stuff on the weekends. Like, you know, I found myself getting all the books and trying to learn more and understanding why do organizations work the way that they do today? And Agilecraft kind of gave me that opportunity. And for me, I mean, it's a problem space that I've worked in ever since. It's probably one of the most fascinating parts because it's not just a work problem or a company problem. People need to make choices. People need to make trade-offs. People need to understand a choice that they've made is moving in the direction they want or not, right? Like that is a life skill. It is such a fascinating and, if you say, rich space of both literature and things to discover. That's what I loved about even working with Agile Craft and making these products that would help people manage portfolios of initiatives that were going on in their company and what was working and what was not and what was tracking and what was not. And bringing people together to make decisions is sort of fascinating. As you say, it sort of just continues to sort of it's a gift that keeps giving, you know, today I'm going off on holiday and uh, next week. And I was like asking people, oh, you know, I've read these couple of books over the last few weeks and invariably, what should I take on holiday? And it's so fascinating, like the types of replies I start to guess 
from people going, oh yeah, no, you've got to read this. And one person, her name's Tanya Cordley. She's actually with the head of product for Instagram and what is now becoming threads. And she was like, you've got to read this book about Genghis Khan and his story of his life, because it's, it's a phenomenal story, but it's also packed with loads of great lessons about making choices and how do you lead. And to your point as well, about so many of these decision-making approaches come from military. You mentioned commander's intent, this like idea of the single outcome of the mission. I wrote about that in Lean Enterprise, about it's called Afstrar Taktika, but the Prussians first came up with it and then Napoleon adopted it. And all of these like skills that allowed high maneuverability of small teams to outmaneuver big armies. A lot of that came from these sort of ideas and translating into companies now as well, like small cross-functional teams, clear outcomes that they're focused on, give them agency to operate when they've clarity over the outcome they're aiming for, right? Like that's an agile team, as we call it. Napoleon called it maneuver warfare. So it is fascinating, fun to dig into and learn more. You just sort of haven't stopped there. This is one of the things that's kind of fun for me. Like not only have you sort of embraced this through your early design career to actually incorporating it into fantastic products like Agile Craft and now what's become Jira Line, but you're sort of going even further now. Like, as you say, you used to read this stuff on the weekends and go deeper, but now you're actually starting to synthesize this into a whole like community and initiative called uh, the Uncertainty Project. So first of all, can you tell us what is the Uncertainty Project? Like, why start this? What have been some of the things you've even learned along the way as, as you build up this community around making choices, decision-making models? to manage uncertainty. I mean, one, it's, it's cool having this conversation just because those books I was reading on the weekend was like Lean Enterprise, <laughs> right? Good plug. Good plug, Kyle. Yeah. Your yeah, five there bucks it is. Wow. Away. Didn't yeah. even know the softball, right? And a big reason that we met back in the day. I think it's really, really interesting t- to think about systems just as large as organizations and work where we spend a solid amount of our lives and hours in a day, right, doing things with other people and coordinating. And so thinking about making those experiences better is, you know, in my opinion, just yeah, absolutely no, no waste of time. And there are endless problems to, to solve there, which is cool. Great about the, the podcast too, right? Speaking of some of the stuff coming from the military, I had Bryce Hoffman on here talking about, you know, a red team thinking super, super, you know, my father-in-law's military intelligence, that's, Super interesting stuff for me to be able to go and the other side of the table, have those conversations about that stuff for people that have lived it and kind of learn from that, which is really cool. But yeah, the Uncertainty Project takes you know a lot of that to say that, hey, there's a lot of existing models and techniques out there for decision-making, not just any type of decision-making, in particular, strategic decision-making in environments of extreme uncertainty. So... The Insurgency Project has been out for six or seven months, but it's really just based on well over a year going on to of, of research on just the intersection between decision-making science, so kind of the academic perspective, and product management and strategy, so kind of like the practitioner perspective. You know, decision-making, particularly strategic decision-making in more of like a decentralized environment, not like, you know, an Andrew Carnegie or a... Henry Ford, right? Like calling the shots kind of thing. Like that's not the world that we live in. This is a 
a decentralized decision-making environment. And it's actually, a, from a research perspective, pretty nascent field. And it's interesting to really think about decision-making as an organizational capability, you know, which I don't think anyone would really disagree that decision-making and like the velocity of decision-making is a strategic advantage. And just to think about ways to kind of systematically make it more effective. I think what's different about the Uncertainty Project is what I found being, you know, this, this is an area of just kind of psychology and decision-making that I've been really interested in in a very long time, going back before AgileCraft, is that the vast majority of stuff out there is mostly around individuals and leadership and kind of self-help when you read about decision-making. We think in building the Uncertainty Project, there's a lot of value in looking at more so decision-making from the perspective of cooperation and driving outcomes and as an intricate part of how organizations grow and what defines them. It's fascinating already. If people go to the uncertaintyproject.org, there's a few great things on there that struck me straight away. First of all, you just have brilliant people writing really great articles, folks from fantastic companies all over the world, be Google, Airtable, Atlassian, NVIDIA. And these are people that are working on really interesting, like hard problems. Chris Bugger is a good example, right? He's leading a product leader on machine learning at Google and trying to inform how their machine learning models make decisions, like super fascinating stuff. And even these ideas of like, you've so many models and techniques and starting to catalyze them, talking about biases that people fall into. And this threads idea as well, where people are like putting up almost like lightning rod type topics and driving conversation around them as well. It's really interesting to see the momentum starting to build into, build into this thing and the quality of people that are gathering around it, both to contribute, to learn, to create a community, which is sort of, again, part of making great decisions in a way. I'm kind of curious, what's been some of the things that have surprised you and maybe some of the decisions you've had to make as you're creating a community around managing uncertainty and, and making decisions. You know, I've definitely learned a lot, especially from the idea, as opposed to being an individual kind of digging into the research for my own learning. The reason for starting to get stuff out there was to attract people that were also deep in this stuff and very interested in it, and especially kind of the application of it as well. And it worked. I mean, Chris Butler, for example, blows my mind every time I have a conversation with him and, you know, conversations with Bryce and others. And now with the threads, which I guess we got to change the name now, right? The idea being is, well, can we put ideas out there and a foundation out there and really practice kind of a lot of dialogue around these things and disagreement? And from the perspective of bridging academia to the practitioner side is, can we do that by putting as much information out there as we can and just think about how these things are applicable and kind of just changing the way that we work. One of the biggest things that I've learned through the research and all this, you know, you can kind of follow along with a lot of the writing on the Uncertainty Project and what's starting to shape not only the library of kind of models and techniques that we hope to try and learn and iterate, but also starting to form, you know, kind of cohesive playbooks for what this kind of, you know, looks like for a, for a product manager or a program manager or chief of staff or somebody doing strategic portfolio management or whatever that might be. But for me, I, 
One of the more interesting learnings, I think, is actually a very positive outlook on kind of humanity and how people make decisions. I think many people are familiar with the concept of cognitive biases and heuristics that kind of influence, especially the way that we share, receive, analyze information, and of course, ultimately impacts the way that we individually make decisions. But most of really what you see out there is kind of focused on this individual decision-making, this help-help kind of stuff. And the message there is that realistically, when we make decisions that are informed by impact groups, particularly environments of radical uncertainty, which really, you know, many of the decisions that we deal with are, the rules change from this kind of individual decision-making biases and heuristics kind of models. So speaking of a book list, there's the great book, Mervyn King and John Kay. It's actually titled Radical Uncertainty, which is a fantastic title. But they describe it as mysteries versus puzzles or small world versus big world. And I think that's a really good way of describing it, right? Like much of what we understand about biases and heuristics, particularly that kind of they're bad and more of like a bug than a feature. You know, a lot of those studies were done in environments where kind of the outcome is well known. You could like calculate expected value, et cetera. And of course, I mean, the work is incredibly valuable to understanding how we operate as individuals and understanding our own tendencies. But in their words, right, when we move to kind of thinking about big world problems, where we're always operating with imperfect information, and there's actually kind of like no way to identify every potential path. These are mysteries. They're not puzzles. There is no right answer. There's just kind of a possible explanation for why things are the way that they are. And, you know, you're trying to kind of build enough conviction to take the next move. What's really interesting about all of this, particularly for product leadership and strategy and, and strategic thinking, is that the teams and leaders that operate well in these environments typically operate with models and techniques to do so. And like you see this when going through interviews or you kind of listen to growing teams or, I mean, take example for, you know, Rippling at Saster was talking about how they make decisions as it's baked into culture. Like it's interesting. And these are kind of like explicit models and, and techniques. These are things like principles, even overstatements, goal setting, like all these things help build a reference narrative that we use to navigate uncertainty. That's so good, Kyle. You've just made me think of a couple of things. One, in Nobody Studios at the moment, we're constantly trying to find people to bring into the studio. Right. Even the process of going through and interviewing folks, it really stands out when you ask someone a question like, oh, when you were building a startup, which is a mystery, how did you go about like discovering your first target customer or your niche? And it's very interesting when you hear like the rigor where some people have methods and models and tools and how they work them through versus the people who sort of can say, oh, we just found them or whatever, right? And you're like, okay, well, congratulations, but interesting. Even then as well in companies, and I see this as well a lot, like when people understand how decisions, how they're made, they can actually then make better decisions and contribute more because there's clarity about, all right, we need to make a decision on, should we go for segment A or segment B? I need to have things like data prepared. Maybe it's a persona prepared. Maybe I have to show evidence that I've discovered through customer interviews or research as to why this is the way to go. Like, I need to be ready. I can't just walk in there and go, we're targeting segment B. 
because I know best. It's a fascinating way to get more collaboration. It shows you have to reason with people, show your work, and everyone gets smarter then if we are able to show how we got there. And yeah, what's even more fascinating is when you think about if that can become institutional knowledge or information that the company can draw upon over time. Because at the moment, it's story-based. It's like we're still in this world of, oh yeah, we made that decision. All right, who made it? Oh, I don't know. It was like two years ago. They've all left. Five of their four of them, someone moved to Nepal now and is having a great time hiking around there. You know, like, how did we make that decision that now is a huge impact on how this company operates? The information gets lost. It's kind of fascinating. You're obviously well deep in this, just listening to you talk about the conciseness about how you can describe what goes into decisions, words like conviction, trade-offs, they mean a lot to me when I hear them because it's, they're a language of managing uncertainty and choice. And it's exciting to like hear you talk about this. Like, What are you most excited about as you continue to sort of build out the uncertainty project? And how can maybe people get involved as they hear about this and go, well, yeah, that's an area I'm passionate about. So yeah, let's start off a bit with what are you getting excited about? And then we can tell people like how they could get involved. Yeah, for sure. First, you're talking about the concept of this institutional knowledge or company memory. Imagine a reality where that is something that is to a degree kind of creable and irrefutable. And that's a very interesting situation to be able to really draw a path from the current state and understand all of the choices that were made in order to get to that current state. I also think that it's interesting when it comes to how organizations decide, a lot of that is just implicit today. And so I think things like that are very, very interesting to make explicit, right? Why decisions were made, what decision was made, you know, et cetera. There are a laundry list of reasons why sometimes that doesn't exist, whether there's just no value to transparency or et cetera. I think what I'm most excited about with kind of the journey that we've been on with the uncertainty project is that there's obviously like very interesting kind of parallels, especially with just like the timing of research and this kind of understanding around not only how human beings cooperate with each other and how we make decisions, but now we also have this like completely different substrate of machines getting much more capable. And again, I think there's actually a really positive message there around human beings make decisions together and kind of piece together narratives together. Human beings have this capacity for conviction and inspiration. And you know, starting a company is not a rational thing. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to live in a purely rational world. And so I think that's a a very positive kind of outlook, especially that, that's what I get excited about as we kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper and understanding this stuff. And I think the next step and the challenge is really, well, then how do you go and translate this into very practical things that can actually have a meaningful impact on the way that people work and make decisions in organizations, again, you know, specifically in groups and around strategy and even, you know, simple stuff like a decision that has buy-in and is communicated well, even if it's an unpopular choice, that's just a better feeling than being surprised. You have an article on this, right? Is 
and better ways to communicate decisions. I think in general, this problem space in particular has a lot of opportunity to not only be impactful from just like a strategic advantage perspective, but also just impactful in a way that collaborating and cooperation and communicating just feels better. People aren't surprised or feel like they weren't included or whatever that might be. And that, mind you, doesn't have to happen by having a consensus-driven environment. It's funny, we have these conversations all the time and we, you talk about decision-making from like a systematic kind of perspective. You know, we talk about like a decision architecture and things like that. Immediate, it's like, oh, you're going to take ownership and authority, you know, away or do all these things. Like, no, actually, you know, it's, it's actually quite the opposite to be able to kind of improve the speed of decision-making, not slow it down with heavy process through clarifying ownership and accountability and doing these things. And right. But so I, I think there's so much like net positive kind of gain. Again, you know, being optimistic, there's still a lot of ground to say like, oh, what does this actually look like kind of in practice? But that's always interesting when it's like, you kind of see a lot of the research is very new and exciting and not only helps you understand yourself, but how teams work and companies work. And I think it paints a, a positive outlook in the future, <laughs> in my opinion. Right on, it does. Yeah. Like you say, this is something that's so broader than just you're going to work, right? It's not like you have to learn how to manage uncertainty. It's only increasing. It's only getting more ambiguous to the world. There's more innovations happening, more things changing. And that ability, which sort of goes back to your opening in a way, rather than committing to just saying, I'm going to go be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a software engineer, I'm going to get focused on being good at solving problems or being aware of problems and figuring out ways to get past them, regardless of the discipline that I'm in. And I feel that those sort of core fundamental capabilities people need to develop in themselves, how to make good decisions, how to be resilient, how to try new things. For me, it's something I constantly focus on for myself or in my own world and the teams I'm with, that my friends, is my family even, it's like, these are the skills to nurture. And I think the Uncertainty Project is certainly a place where regardless of whether you're building machine learning models in Google or you're someone who's just like figuring out what I want to be, when I finish my art design degree, there's an opportunity for people to be part of it. So tell us a little bit about how people, so they'll listen to this show, you know, there's thousands of folks listening right now. How do they come and get part of this and start to contribute? Like how can they reach out to you or people running the project and tribute? Yeah. I think first is think about within our own teams and companies and organizations to, you know, kind of ask the question, how do we make decisions with an effort to kind of think, okay, if, even if this is an implicit thing, like what are the things that we believe and what are the assumptions that we have? You know, and a lot of those things are just baked into the organization as a whole. They're baked into the, the products, right? Those things are just as, as real as the code that runs them. And then I think as a contribution and certainty project is we're trying to do is just get a lot of thoughts out there and kind of surface a lot of relevant, you know, models and techniques. And, you know, this is a very stand on the shoulder of giants scenarios. All we're trying to do is, is surface a lot of information so that we can have conversations around it. One is that pretty much everywhere all over the site, there's comment boxes, right? You know, we'd love to hear from you. It's funny, I actually get mostly DMs from people and have conversations, you know, more often than that. I'm like, yeah, we want to get some stuff out there and have conversations. In the public domain. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I my rent, though. I feel like so often I'm, which is great. Please, please message me. I, I love having conversations about this stuff. And I think we're still doing a lot of learning. And I think the next step is going to be really helping us start to move this into the, what is actually practical, which is of course, no small feat by any means. I think check out the content, read, and then really think about what that looks like in you know our own organizations. And I would love to learn about what's been good and bad about that. Of course, at the Uncertainty Project, we love this quote by Voltaire, which is, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd one. That's really like interesting to think about. You know, everybody kind of has this like a gut feel, like navigating uncertainty and like whatever. But really what we're doing is like, there's a lot of pursuit of certainty in organizations today to just kind of think about where is this pursuit of, you know, the oasis of like certainty that really doesn't exist. It's interesting to think about ways to say, you know what? We don't need to spend six weeks getting that answer for an incredibly expensive price <laughs> to pay, right? Where are there opportunities to actually kind of, you know, stomach un uncertainty? And what we're trying to, you know, identify is like ways to do that, especially systematically. Yeah. It's a great initiative. I'm enjoying following along, be contributing as much as I possibly can. I'll definitely write some more vlogs and jump in on some of the threads and I know you're starting your own podcast around this too as well. So I'm excited to tune in and who knows, maybe even show up on the show once or time to share more there. And it's been great to have you on the show, Kyle. Again, it's fantastic to see all the great work you are doing and have worked with you and continue to in the future. So yeah, keep us on, man. It's great. Yeah, we've got you on the list. And yeah, thanks for having me on here for sure. You know, obviously you've been a big inspiration early on in my career and then continue with all the great work that you've already done around uncertainty and decision-making and all the great content that you already have. So we're excited to see it grow and, and hopefully see the, the impact that it has. So thanks. Keep it up. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years. And who knows how many beyond that? So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.